Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Over the centuries, so much of Scripture has been taken out of context that it's sometimes difficult to hear the obvious in the text. In the Gospel of Matthew, the characters in the story are themselves blind to the obvious meaning of Scripture for the very same reason. In the absence of study, repetition, and familiarity with the written teaching, the obvious becomes hidden to us in plain sight. The obvious appears to us to be a mystery. Seek, the Matthean Jesus warns us, and ye shall find. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, verses 10 to 13. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 301 of the Bible as Literature podcast. For as long as we have been doing this, Richard, I have found it necessary to keep repeating the fundamentals, especially when we stumble across a section like verses 10 to 13 in chapter 13 of Matthew, because the minute we see the word mystery, or we see speaking in parables, we tend to take these texts out of context and theologize and try to figure out what's going on. And there's all kinds of discussion about secret gospels and Gnosticism. And then, you know, this idea of mysteries in a theological sense, it's a complete misreading. This is Matthew. There are teachings that we have to remember from Matthew that help us understand Matthew. First, this is the gospel where we heard, seek and ye shall find. It's the gospel where we heard about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and being shut out. It's also the gospel where we heard about the eye being the lamp of the body. And these are passages that we've had to refer to again and again to help understand what's happening here in Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount is not something to put on a poster and hang up in your office. The Sermon on the Mount is a way of understanding the rest of the book of Matthew. Jesus taught this teaching in Matthew as a basis for what he was going to teach later on. It's not like a class where you have unit one, unit two, unit three, take a midterm, forget everything you know in units one through three and start with unit four. It's cumulative. You have to understand the Sermon on the Mount if you want to understand what Jesus is saying in chapter 13. Matthew is a single book. I always think of Jesus telling his parable, then the disciples scratch their heads, and Jesus explains the parable to them. But there's a considerably long passage explaining why he teaches in parables in between the original parable and the explanation. Why do you want to hide information from some people, yet offer information to others? As we read through it, I think when one takes the time 
to look verse by verse. An explanation does become clear if they don't go in the direction of Gnosticism, like you said, Father, which is like, well, some people get secret information and some people don't get secret information. Other people say, oh, isn't that mean that Jesus would hide stuff from some people and tell stuff to other people? Why would he favor people? Doesn't he love everybody? And get into this kind of odd thinking. I think once we unpack this, it'll be a lot clearer to understand why Jesus teaches the way that he does using the methods that he does. The grace is the fact that you're hearing the story. So everyone hearing the story is being given access to understand the mystery. And a mystery is not something magical. It's something hidden. To a child, two plus two equals four, insofar as it's something they don't know before they study math, it's a mystery. But when you explain it to them, it's no longer a mystery. We have to understand it on this basic level. And again, this is the text where we are told, seek and ye will find. Obviously, the Torah was available to everyone in the story. Jesus is preaching it to the crowds. The Pharisees are religious scholars, so they have access to God's instruction, which was handed down to them as a gift in the chronology of the biblical narrative before it was handed to the crowds, to the extent that the crowds to some degree represent the nations, depending on the setting. The disciples, like the Pharisees, have been given the gift of the same teaching. What's the difference? In a gospel where we are told, seek and ye shall find, ask, knock, and it will be opened to you. The point is, if you're not making the effort to study and to seek wisdom from the text, you won't receive wisdom. So the parable is not something new. I mean, Ezekiel, as Father Paul has said on the Tuesday program, is the father of Scripture and the father of the parabolic genre of instruction. So the Bible is a mashal, a parable, written in parables. So if you're not seeking and knocking, you're not going to understand it. It's not something hidden. It's something hidden in plain sight, like basic math. If you don't study, if you don't make the effort, you won't learn and you won't understand. It's not elitist in that sense. Now, having said that, it's also important to point out that the way grace works, God can choose whomever he wants, and he can reject whomever he wants. That's also part of the mechanism here. It's key what you're saying, Father. I mean, I used to tell my students, when they're trying to read these religious texts, I say, you're not going to understand them on the first go. These were not meant to be read once. They're meant to be read and continually mined for wisdom, and you continue to learn from them. When I was doing a Bible study last week on Joel, I said, you know, one of the things you have to do when reading the Bible is not just read what's there, but also realize what the author could have said and didn't. So sometimes you have to read what isn't there, which can be tricky. But I think it's important to say, he said, seek and find, not meander and you'll stumble upon, or skim and you'll figure it out. No, you have to read attentively and you have to seek. It's assuming that kind of work you really want to understand what's going on in class, go to office hours, not because you're going to get some secret information, but because you're going to understand the information in a different way and how the professor is approaching the material. By understanding how the professor is approaching the material, you'll be able to understand it on a deeper level. These are disciples. They're hanging out with the professor all the time. I mean, they're office hours every single day. 
And that's what they're spending their time on. So then when Jesus teaches, they're supposed to be able to understand in a way that's different than the crowds who just show up for one lecture and don't have as much of the other insights that Jesus would share with the disciples. Now, those are not secret. I'm not going into Gnosticism because that's precisely what the disciples were supposed to be doing as they were going around. They weren't supposed to just get these insights and relax and feel happy that they understood. With this grace of understanding then comes an imperative a duty to go and share this information to all the people in the cities of Judah and beyond. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Here, again, mystery means something that can be known and is not known to some because someone hasn't explained it to them or they haven't discovered it. But it's not something that can't be explained. It can be explained. You can explain to someone how to compute 2 plus 2 and how it works in the system of mathematics. It's not something that can't be explained. And this is important because there's a tendency in shoddy scholarship to talk about this as though it can't be explained and then talk about it. Well, if something can't be explained, how can you talk about it? What are you talking about? It obviously can be explained because the disciples here have been granted the gift of understanding. But remember the system in Scripture, the understanding, which is the grace of the Holy Spirit, comes through the seeking, the knocking, and the asking on the door of the gospel. And the seeking and the knocking has to be part of what the disciple does. That's what defines what the disciple is. I mean, Jesus can't spoon-feed the disciples. He can't spoon-feed the crowds even. You know, this is looking forward to a very challenging time when they're going to have to interpret the resurrection and the crucifixion, which are very difficult to understand. And so Jesus has to get them to this level. And so he's teaching them through parables because it's only by seeking and teaching. I mean, someone who actually wants to know is going to put in the work. People who love to complain, love to complain. Someone complains about a thing and you say, oh, okay, and you go and solve that for them, and then they start to complain about something else. Because it really wasn't about the thing, it was about complaining. Someone who doesn't want to find what the answer is is not going to try to find what the answer is. And if they do want to find the answer, then they'll go and find the answer. If they're willing to do the work, they'll do the work. If they're not willing to do the work, then they're not going to do the work. You can't convince them. Just like someone who complains is going to complain no matter how many obstacles you take out of their way. Jesus is saying, look, here's the obstacle. You do with it what you want. Either you do the work to figure it out or you can go do something else. Like, it's not my problem. And this is Jesus's imperative to continue to go and spread the seed in as many fields as possible. For whoever has, to him more shall be given and he will have an abundance but whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. This teaching is echoed in the other Gospels and will appear later in Matthew in the parable of the talents. But the abundance here refers to the abundance 
that is provided by God's wisdom. It's the abundance of understanding. It's the abundance of the fruit-bearing teaching. Your cup is overflowing with this grace when you seek wisdom from God's instruction. And if you seek it, more will be added to it. It's an endless bounty. It's not like you study scripture and suddenly you've got it and there's nothing more you can get from it. The way the genre works, you have to spend the rest of your life studying it and you will always gain more abundance and more will be added to that abundance. But if you're not seeking it, if you're like, you know, the average Christian who says, well, I read the Bible, I get it. You're supposed to be nice to each other. That poverty is going to be compounded with ignorance and a deeper poverty. Because it's not as simple as that. It takes work to understand what the biblical imperative is for the way we are commanded to live and what its objective is for the sake of the common good. It's not as simple as you think, even though it's very simple in a non-theological sense. It's not a complicated philosophy, but the reality of life with which it deals is obviously very complex. Life only seems simple when you're a platonic thinker who develops a crisp, clean, simple, streamlined concept of the world around you. But in reality, there is complexity, and the teaching tackles that complexity at the ground level. So it takes work to understand what Scripture is saying. And the more you work, the more you understand, the more your cup runs over. That abundance really is what allows you to understand more. But as you hinted, when we receive this abundance, it's not only a good thing. It's also a judgment, because when you have that extra abundance, then you have a duty that's tied with that abundance. I think a great example of this I heard on a podcast about Dale Carnegie, one of the most worldly people. He wrote a book even called The Gospel of Wealth. But one interesting thing is he said that when you have wealth, you're simply a trustee, and your job is to invest that in the community before you die, not in your will, but as you live, your job is to continue to go and give more and more. Now, Dale Carnegie was self-righteous. But one man who teaches this teaching was talking about a foundation that he runs. If you're on Fortune magazine's top richest people in the world, more than once, shame on you. Because your goal should be, if you're at number one or number two, to be at number 20 next time. Because you've given away that much of your wealth. This should be your goal. Because you have a duty to give it away. This is actually what Dale Carnegie, a very worldly person, said. So let's say that you're a student at university and you go to class, but then you also go to office hours. The professor is teaching you more things than just what he's teaching you in the lecture, talking about other chapters that you didn't have to read for class. You're getting more and more knowledge. And then you go in and you take the final exam and you get the same score as someone who wasn't going to office hours. The professor is going to say, what were you spending your time in my office doing? It wasn't just in order to have a cup of coffee. That was business. So the expectation is that if you're coming, you're going to perform better because you have a duty to use that knowledge and to be able to show that you understood what was going on on a deeper level, not at the same level as everybody else. This grace that was given to the disciples is not only good news. They have a duty 
Jesus is not telling the crowds, go to every town and teach them. He says this to the disciples because they had the mysteries uncovered for them. They understand what scripture is saying. And so they have a duty to go out and teach other people what scripture is saying. The crowds don't have this responsibility. The Pharisees and the scribes, however, do because they're supposed to be knowledgeable. They're supposed to know more. And so they have a higher responsibility as well. It is a frightful and awesome responsibility, Rich, and very often not in the way that people realize because it begins with a duty to submit to its commandment. And the commandment pertains to how we live and treat one another, but it also pertains to what we say, and it supplants our human words with its words. This is the difficult part for Christians in the neo-pagan Hellenistic reality in which we reside today where human words are elevated. Everyone is being asked to give their word and this ugly phrase, their truth. It's an ugly phrase because this idea of everyone having their truth or speaking their truth is contributing to the fragmentation of society. Scripture is doing exactly what the French existentialists resent. It is canceling out your perspective. It is canceling out the lamp of your eye and replacing it with the light of its instruction, which is for not your good, but the common good. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. This point about understanding is critical because when you come together around a text and that text becomes the basis for community and you commit yourself to understanding what that text is saying objectively from its perspective, not yours, and the text happens to be written to build up fellowship among men and women in society, Suddenly, your abdication of your, quote, personal truth in favor of what the text is saying creates relationships, creates community, mitigates violence, and creates the possibility for life to continue. We have to be faithful to what the text is saying from its perspective, because that then becomes the light that allows us to see something we all share in common. Who cares about your truth, Rich? Your truth is meaningless to me because it's completely subjective. I'm interested in how we come together and speak intelligibly and build connections and build communion with each other and understanding. It's damning if they do not hear or understand and are blind as a result in Matthew. Remember the parable of the healing of the blind man. It's damning because then there's no hope. Abdicating one's personal truth is such an important point of Scripture. It's personal truths precisely that divide us as a community, as a country, as a society. Because I have my truth and you have your truth. I believe this and you believe those things. The only way 
we can find an impasse is either I convince you that my truth is better than yours or you convince me, or we go to a third truth, which is scripture that is working towards unity and brotherhood, whereas my personal truth is not empirically. It's easy to see that it doesn't bring people together. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.